welcome to Thoughtlines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and in this episode we hear how music is a route to resistance. talking to Professor Kenneth Marcus, Professor of History at the University of Laverne in California and visiting fellow here at CRASH. His job, he feels, is to make the big ideas and moments in our past come alive in the here and now, using music in particular to transport us there. With conflict once more raging in Europe, his current project on World War II is heartbreakingly timely. But, like his musical lodestar, the composer Arnold Schoenberg, Marcus is convinced that teaching the next generation to be creative is one way to change the story. Well, it's a bright summer day here in Cambridge, and I'm here to meet Professor Kenneth Marcus, who's a cultural historian and he's been spending the spring and summer here at Crash working on his project which he's called Communicating Human Rights Music and Pacifism in the 20th Century. So what better place to meet him than right next door to Crash at the university's West Road Concert Hall. Let's go and see where he is. Oh I can hear music. Oh my goodness he's sitting at the piano on the stage. Professor Marcus, that's quite an intro. Good morning. It's a delight to be here. What are you playing to me right now? Oh, this is uh, George Gershwin's Swonderful. Well, that is an amazing start to an interview. It will be very swonderful. Thank you very much indeed. Now, Kenneth, I know you've come to us from the States for this fellowship at Crash, but you were a, a postgrad here in the 80s and 90s, weren't you? It was 87 to 92 as a postgrad. While we're sitting here next to this absolutely beautiful concert quality grand piano, I've got to ask you more about your own Cambridge playlist. I mean, while you were here, what were you listening to? What formed your landscape here? Wow. My first memory of West Road was coming to see a, a concert here with, well, at that time, my girlfriend, today my wife. And we saw the Dvorak cello concerto in B minor, and uh, Stephen Isserlis, who at that time was a young up-and-coming cellist, uh, performed here with so much enthusiasm, and you had the Cambridge Orchestra behind him, and it was just fabulous, absolutely fabulous. I mean, a beautiful thing about Cambridge is, uh, certainly my experience at that time, was that there was just so much music going on, and from all different time periods. For example, the, the Cambridge Festival during the summer was just fabulous, and you go out to all the colleges, and so some of the works that, that I remember were uh, 
Baroque and Renaissance works like uh, the Handel Trumpet Concerto, and which we heard at at, at Cats in St. Catherine's College with Crisp and Steele Perkins. Then we heard Even Song at different colleges. And then from what I was working on myself, right, the, you know, giving a few concerts here, taking part in the musical life in some way, that, that was certainly a part of it as well. Yeah. So music, obviously, absolutely central to your life. You're studying it here at Crash. You're a historian of, of music and other culture. And do you compose as well? Yes, I do. Um, piano and guitar and write songs and so on, yeah. I have to ask you, how come you did history? How come you're not in the music department? <laughs> I've often gotten that question. Well, I, I really love both fields. And my dream from the beginning was to study history. I love reading and writing and so on. And to meld it with the study of music so that you can present music uh, themes and ideas uh, also to historians who don't tend to get a lot of exposure to it in their professional work, in my sense. And I think that's, that's where, you know, my niche is. I noticed that, I mean, one of your books comes with a CD. One of your academic textbooks comes with a CD to listen to. I mean, I've never seen that before. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a way to make the music come alive. I mean, in that book, which is called Musical Metropolis, Los Angeles, and the Creation of a Music Culture, 1880 to 1940. So I take themes, uh, performers, the music venues, uh, everything you can think of related to the development of Los Angeles as a city and how the development of that music culture really reflected the development, the growth of, of the city itself. And so to make that music come alive, rather than just talk about it on the page, I worked with a recording engineer to bring together 20 historical recordings um, that he had access to. And so uh, that was a way that people, I guess you could say, felt like they were there, right? Because this was music that was recorded at that time. Tell me more about the composers and the music that you're working with here at Crash. Here at Crash, I'm working um, especially on three composers. Benjamin Britten and Hans Eisler, who's a Viennese composer and then lived many years in Germany and uh, Arnold Schoenberg, who was his mentor. And they created, well, they created a whole variety of music, but some of the works that they composed, especially during the 1930s and 40s, related to human rights issues. And that really, you know, caught my ear. I wanted to find out more why. And so I had worked on Schoenberg, my previous book, Schoenberg and Hollywood Modernism, is on his work as an exile in Los Angeles. And one of his best-known pieces from that period, when he was working in L.A. in 1934 to his death in 1951, is um, A Survivor from Warsaw, which is a direct response to the Holocaust. And he certainly wasn't the first to address the Holocaust. But for him, this was very unusual it was, I guess you could call it a kind of applied music, where he's addressing a real historical event that was so shocking, so horrific. And 
to pack as much as he did in that seven and a half minute cantata uh, is a pretty amazing feat. And so you can, rather than going to hear a lecture or something, you could hear a piece of music. Now, you may or may not agree with how he did that or themes that he adopted with that, but um, it is a creative response to a, a human rights issue. And that attracted me to that, and for similar, similar reasons for these other two works. Well, Britain and Isla were both also exiles, both also pacifists. Yes. Eisler immediately fled into exile when the Nazis arrived. Um, he was part Jewish. His mother was Lutheran, so technically he wasn't a Jew, but uh, that didn't make any difference with the Nazis, <laughs> so his life was in danger. And besides that, he was a socialist uh, and supported Marxist-Leninist ideology. So he fled, and he worked on this piece, the German symphony, the Deutsche Symphony, uh, his entire time in exile. It was his response to what's going on, the horrific abuses in Germany. So as an exile, I guess, looking in, he could provide a different kind of perspective that many other composers could not, certainly not those who were actually remaining in Nazi Germany. So he was trying to use this piece as a sort of wake-up call. Look what's happening. Um, concentration camps, you know, torture, murder. These aren't typical themes for a musical composition. And so that, that, uh, that caught my eye as well. Um, you know, why did he create this piece? How did he try to you know, communicate these you know, horrific events or these human rights abuses um, with, uh, with his collaborator, Bertolt Brecht, who wrote the text and from most of it. And, uh, and so, you know, that interested me there. And then Benjamin Britten, as you say, was in exile um, uh, in uh, the late 30s up until the early 40s uh, in the United States, a self-imposed exile. He wasn't in any physical danger necessarily, but uh, he uh, and, and Peter Paris wanted to escape the horrors in Europe. And so they came to California. And that's where actually where I first developed an interest in Benjamin Britten as a part of this project because of his pacifist stance. Kenneth, we're back in the seminar room at Crash and we get the chance to talk a little bit more in depth about what your interests are. I know that you describe yourself as a cultural historian and your special focus is on the cultural history of Los Angeles, Hollywood, music as resistance, music as resistance against racism, music as community. And I was wondering how is the approach of a cultural historian different from the work of any other flavour of historian. What fascinates you about cultural history and, and why? I think 
One of the main differences for me really comes down to sources. I mean, the kinds of sources that a political or diplomatic historian, uh, legal or military historian, whatever, might be looking at are quite different from many of the sources that I look at, right? Where it has to do with music, with dance, with photography. So I'd like to think that some of my sources are maybe a bit more fun than theirs, where you get to see performances here, recordings, you know, photographs, um, all these documentary sort of forms of evidence in archives. And that's also part of the challenge, right? Because these are often very fluid moments that may or may not be correctly grasped in these recordings or in these films or these photographs. And so if I can, supplementing it with oral history, interviews, and this sort of thing can, I think, greatly enrich the story. The project that you've brought to Crash uh, for this period of time is called Communicating Human Rights, Music and Pacifism in the 20th Century. What was the cultural question that was niggling away at you when you devised this line of work? I wanted to know how cultural artifacts could help us understand these very weighty themes of pacifism and human rights, anti-militarism. And so I chose three works in particular to focus on. And I've sought to sort of carve out the historical and cultural context in which these works were written. And most human rights historians don't typically look at the arts in discussing human rights issues. Um, they're much more interested in, and quite understandably so, in legal, political, diplomatic arguments and sources. And a work that I came across by the historian Mark Philip Bradley, um, The World Reimagined, um, he talked about this concept called the global human rights imagination. And that really captured my interest, I thought. Wow, we could think about human rights in a completely different light. And that works by photographers and filmmakers, sculptors, writers, and so on, can actually be part of the conversation. Because the arts can create empathy, right? That perhaps they can have this connection to promoting human rights ideas. So to recap then, your three large pieces of music that you're looking at while you're here in Cambridge, Arnold Schoenberg's A Survivor from Warsaw, Hans Eisler's German Symphony, and Benjamin Britten's War Requiem. Quite often when we talk about war and when we talk about particularly the Second World War and the Holocaust, we say words fail us. In this case your composers that you're focusing on seem to also say music alone fails us. We need music and words together to try and get people to listen to what we're saying. Can you tell me about how they use text and music together? Yeah, this is a very important point of all three of these works. 
you could have a situation where the composer would say, this is the music, this is what I'm talking about, take my word for it. But if you have the texts along with the music, you have a far greater chance of your message being understood. Each composer uses texts in very different ways. Schoenberg uses a diary, a memoir that he either actually did read or that he created. Um, and he uses a, a liturgical text, the Shema Israel, which is a Jewish prayer. And he uses that at the end of the work. Uh, he uses English. He uses German and a very particular German, East Prussian dialect. Uh, he uses um, Hebrew. So it's a, really a kind of collage of experience. And at the premiere of this work in 1948, which was in New Mexico, the response was absolutely astounding, right? Because by this time, reports of the concentration camps and the extermination camps were coming out. People were pretty well-versed who wanted to find out about these things. So this may well have been, for them, one of the first, maybe the first musical work that really confronted something that was very much in, in the public eye, very much in news reports and so on. And it just got this massive ovation. And the audience apparently demanded that it be performed again. And that kind of response for a Schoenberg work during his exile was singular, to my knowledge. He certainly wasn't the first to write about the Holocaust uh, in, in a musical work, but he did it in a way that I, I had never heard from other composers. And to integrate these different um, languages and different ideas, different backgrounds, the whole uh, context, uh, and of course to end with the Shema Israel with a, a men's chorus was so striking an ending and was so symbolic, right? We will not be defeated in the face of these horrors that are perpetrated on us. And so I, I found that to be really quite, quite stirring. Does it have the same effect on you now? Anytime that music comes on, do you have to stop and listen? Yes, it does. It's, it, you know, it starts off with a bugle call, da -da -da -da, called the Reveille, and that immediately grabs your ear, right? You know, what is this, right? And he wants to do that. He wants to shake you, wake you up and say, something's happening here. And it's a, it's a military bugle, right? So it immediately places us in a camp, and that's where the empathy of, of an artwork can, can really transport us. And then... After instrumental introduction, you hear a voice in English explaining his um, deadening sense of what was happening to him, trying to get across some of, of the horror of first the Warsaw Ghetto and, and then later a, an extermination camp. And, yeah, that's not a typical topic for most works of art music. So I think that succinct aspect, which is common in much of Schoenberg's works, is particularly powerful here.
remember everything. I must have been unconscious most of the time. I remember only the grandiose moment when they all started to sing as if prearranged. The old prayer they had neglected for so many years. The forgotten creed. One can always argue, as Adorno famously did, right, that poetry after Auschwitz is, well, effectively is unacceptable. I think um, quite a few composers and other artists would respectfully disagree that we have to communicate uh, sometimes terrible things uh, to audiences to get them to confront what's happening in front of us. And uh, for the other two works, Eisler's German Symphony or the Deutsche Symphony, that is a a work created over a very long period of time, 1935 to 1958. The world really changed, literally, during that time. And it's one of the first musical works that I'm aware of that addressed the, the concentration camps and some of the brutalities that were going on in Nazi Germany. Yes, yeah, so, I mean... He was quite prescient. I mean, he was starting writing this music saying, look what is happening now in 1935. I mean, he was writing into his time as a warning almost, wasn't he? Very much so. And a, a very important part of that project is his collaborator, Bertolt Brecht. So they had been working together since 1930 in Berlin. They politically were hand in glove in how they saw the world. And Brecht became Eisler's most important collaborator for his entire career. And they worked on a text in exile called Lieder Gedichte Chöre, or Songs, Poems, Choruses, came out in 1934. And that work was the foundation for the German symphony. And at the end of that book, they have some musical notes where people could sing the poems, right, the songs, and in that sense, get people engaged in these themes. And that's where he really differs from Schoenberg. He was not trying to get a very specific audience, an elite audience, quite the contrary. He wanted to reach the masses. And so something big like a symphony is a way of getting across to, to large audiences. And he also wanted the, the common people, for lack of a better term, everyday men and women, to be able to sing it, right? That they would be part of the chorus so that it would be not too foreign to them, that, that it could be singable. They could resist by singing, by joining Absolutely. in, quite literally. Absolutely. That idea of blending text then with music is a way of directly presenting the message to the audience. What does Britain want his audience to think or feel or do? Does he want singing along? Does he want standing ovations? Yeah, so this is a work that I'm really delving into uh, in, more in, in more depth while I'm here. So I 
cannot claim to be an expert yet on the War Requiem. But uh, the way I see it is this is a pacifist statement by a well-known pacifist. He left Britain and the Second World War, wanted nothing to do with the war, agreed to come back and be accepted as a conscientious objector, did make in his own way a kind of contribution to the war effort. And when he was offered this commission, I think it was 1958, he immediately took it up and said, I can take two vastly different texts, Wilfred Owen and the, the Latin Requiem Mass, and juxtapose them and make a statement, right, that war is horrific and it destroys needlessly the lives of millions of young men and women. What makes that work different from the other two that I'm looking at is this is a World War I text, and it's commemorating an event that took place during the Second World War. So when Britain wants this work performed, he uses an English singer, Peter Perrers, he uses a, a German singer, Fischer Dieskau, and he wants to use a, a Russian singer. So he tries to present an international perspective on pacifism. It doesn't work out in, in the premiere for various reasons. The, the Russian uh, soprano can't make the premiere, which is well known, and but she is able to make the recording, the 1963 recording. And so... It's one of the best-selling recordings in the classical music world, I think, in the second half of the 20th century. The work is immediately grabbed up by critics and audiences alike. There's an immediate response. So there's no question that he's hitting a nerve. Am I right in thinking, though, that his very clear instruction during the performance, certainly during the premiere, was that he didn't want the audience to applaud at the end? He wanted total silence. Yes, I think that's right. It's taking place in a cathedral. This is a, a house of God. And it's a very solemn occasion. It's something that is at once tragically horrible, the loss of millions of lives needlessly in Britain's view and in two world wars. But it's also something, as I understand it, uh, very beautiful, this reconciliation that happens at the end and that we can come to terms with, with death and, and with the, the hope for the preservation of life. And to applaud or to consider it as a standard work in a concert hall, in, in Britain's view, would be not an abomination, but it would perhaps detract from the reception of the work. Kenneth, we're sitting here in Cambridge now, in a time of war. Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February this year. Almost immediately, within days, we were seeing cultural resistance in various forms, especially music, but coming out from Ukrainian citizens. This is almost your project in real time, isn't it? What does this make you feel? Yes, this is absolutely heartbreaking to witness. 
how can you communicate something so horrific like the the destruction of your city, for example, friends that you've lost? Um, how can you get across the absolute horror of not knowing what will happen? But I, I absolutely think that these musicians are doing exactly that. No, perhaps we can't have the same arsenal that Russia has, but we can fight back. We can resist through our, our own art form, whether in classical music or folk music or popular music, or rap, hip hop, and so on. It's been absolutely tragic and, of course, fascinating as well to see how people are, are responding. Just before meeting you today, I checked how many views on YouTube that winning Ukrainian Eurovision song has. And currently we're at 21,931,131 views since the 14th of May. See, that's incredible. And although it's not fair perhaps to compare, but how can people in other art forms compete with that, right? You are getting immediate connection. So, uh, yeah, it's, I think, an astounding testament to that idea of music as resistance. There's one YouTube video you've probably seen of a group of, of high school graduates who are dancing because they were denied their prom, but they had practiced a dance apparently prior to graduation. The invasion happens, but by golly, they are going to have their dance and they're going to have their performance. And it's in front of a wrecked building in the background and there are Ukrainian soldiers standing by watching. So the visceral impact of that performance just takes on an entirely different dimension than if they had been simply performing that dance in a normal graduation uh, when everything seemed, um, seemed relatively peaceful. And I think that is the power of the arts, or at least that the arts can have and that so many people are responding to it. I know in your own practice as a teacher, you also encourage a lot of creativity in your classroom and also from your students. When did you first realize that you were onto something by including the arts and particularly music into your history teaching as a way of bringing what you call the vital sense of being there? I think, uh, truth be told, I started using the arts in the very first course that I taught, which was as a, a lecture at Boston College. It was a standard course, early modern Europe, which I'd got my PhD in, in in Cambridge. And as I excitedly and exhaustively developed the lectures to talk about the political, the social aspect of European history, I thought, well, it's not just about the wars, <laughs> the famous personages and so on. Who got narrow in whose eye? Right. It's also about the arts. I, I mean, I see the arts as, as a kind of window, right? It's a window into the past. And so if you open those windows and then the interested students will find their own windows, their, their own doors, and then they have a way of connecting with that past, of trying to understand it a little bit better. We, we could never 
claim absolute understanding in a historical period that's impossible. But I think we can, through the arts and other means, find ways to to try to get to understand what people at that particular point in time were were thinking, certainly what they were producing and getting out to people in their own time. So what we're actually talking about really is history as empathy, yeah. history as imagination yeah. to get you to that place of being there. Definitely. I mean, we've all taken history courses where it's absolutely dry as dust. And I guess that has a place <laughs> for some people. I mean, you get the facts, right? But I wonder how many students walk out of the classroom at the end of that dry as dust class and say, boy, that really moved me. Or even I can remember one thing from that class, other than I was incredibly bored during the entire class. And so is there an alternative, right? Artists, by definition, are creative. So can uh, students respond creatively as well? You create something. It could be a story. It could be a diary entry. It could be a poem. It could be a picture, whatever. And in a way, that was the most fulfilling part of it because so many students picked up on that opportunity and and they just wrote amazing stuff and some of them are really quite fearless in presenting that work am i right in thinking kenneth that you've written a rap <laughs> i did yeah so i mean i'm, I'm also a musician i play piano guitar i sing i compose and i was teaching a European history course, Modern Europe. Uh, this is just how this started. And I honestly don't know how it happened. I, I had a rap going through my head. You know, it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how we keep them going under. Uh -huh. And just in an afternoon, I, I guess it was a moment of inspiration. I, I created a text to try to explain the horrors of the First World War. And I was shaking like a leaf when I went up to the students. I said, what have I got to lose? Right? I could just look like a fool. And I gave the rap. And the response was immediate. I mean, they really connected. And they felt that they could try to understand what these soldiers were going through in a, in a format that, that they felt comfortable with. And so I started over the years then introducing other raps uh, into my classes to try to explain certain historical periods. You know I'm going to ask you to give me a little bit, don't you? <laughs> oh, boy. Wasn't expecting this. But <laughs> let's see. You know, it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes you wonder how we keep them going under. You know, it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes you wonder how we keep them going under. Now gather round here, let me tell you a story All about the search for love and glory I started off life without a single worry Until everything started turning gory Well, I saw me a poster, it said Be a man, here's a chance to do what you can Fight for your freedom, fight for your country 
fight hard enough, you can set the whole world free. I went to the office to get me enlisted. I felt so proud. I felt so uplifted. The sergeant said, son, here's your gun. Go out there and have some fun. Well, I marched down the street and everybody screaming. Girls are calling. I thought that I was dreaming. They're all shouting out, you're going to go far. And every single soldier wants to be a superstar. We arrive on the scene and it's looking real mean. Mud everywhere where it could have been green. Guns going off. All the sea of stars and everywhere I look, boy, it's looking like Mars. Big birth of booing. Zeppelins are zooming. Airplanes are looming. And I'm not moving. They tell me this is called real trench warfare. What it really means is I'm going nowhere. Look at that guy firing off his machine gun. My best friend getting blown away. He's gone now. They're shooting poison gas at me. And all I want to do is blow him to eternity. So don't touch me. Cause I'm close to the edge. I'm just trying not to lose my head. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how we keep him going under. You know, it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes you wonder how it keep him going under. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes you wonder how it keep him going under. I said it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes you wonder how it keep him going under. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Professor Kenneth Marcus and the World War Rap. That was amazing. Thank you. Congratulations. Well, no wonder that set the auditorium on fire. <laughs> yeah, they seem to like it. In season one of Thoughtlines, we interviewed a historian of abolition called Bronwyn Everill, who, despite having done her first degree in history at Harvard, said it took her quite a few more years to realise that historian was actually a job. Did you know that historian was a job when you were a student? And did you know that's what you wanted to be? I remember thinking during my undergraduate period at history, which is at UC Berkeley, and uh, thinking, I can't do this. You have way too many facts you have to stuff into your brain, and how can you walk around with all these facts? And, you know, and then to present them in front of all of these students, you know, which I had very little experience with, although I love, and I always have for as long as I can remember, I've loved reading and writing, um, I thought, well, I'll try to do something more down to earth or realistic, whatever you want to call it. So I got a business degree, uh, the French business school, they call Superior de Commerce de Paris. We nearly lost you to business. Uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> my word. lost me to business. And uh, one thing I learned during that degree, although it was fascinating living in Paris, I studied quite a bit of music with a professor there, and I went to scores of concerts. Paris is fabulous for the arts, uh, especially for a poor student. I knew I wasn't going to be a, a business person. Uh, it just wasn't going to work. So I said, I really do love history. I've got to get back to it. And so I went directly to, to Cambridge. What about the music? Did you grow up in a musical home? You say you sing and play the piano, the guitar. Where's all that coming from? Yes, well, both my parents were musical of, of a sort, my dad's mom was, I hear, highly gifted on the piano, uh, and she would sing and play the piano. I never got to hear her. She, she died before I was born, unfortunately. But I've heard many times from my dad that, you know, when I play, I reminded him of her. Oh, wow. And so there's that. My mom played the French horn in 
high school. She had a lovely voice. My siblings and I were exposed to you know, concerts and music. We all had to take up the violin, which I dutifully rejected uh, at the age of seven. I, I learned, uh, actually going into a violin class for some reason, I, I, someone showed me how to play hot cross buns on the piano. <laughs> hot cross buns, hot, three notes. Right? And I was completely transfixed. I thought, my gosh, this is so much more fun than the violin. So my mom um, switched me over to the piano, and it's been a complete love affair with the piano ever since. Well, Professor Kenneth Marcus, I have to say, you are the least dry as dust historian I have ever met by a country mile. It's been a delight to talk to you. Thank you very, very much for sharing your thought lines with us today. My pleasure. Thoughtlines is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV on behalf of CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box. Thoughtlines.